Okay, good, good evening to everybody. Um, we're going to keep continue our journey through the Psalms. Tonight, uh, we'll continue with Psalm 37. This is Psalm 37, verse 5. It'll be the only verse that we look at tonight. And um, it's, it's very, though we're, we're working our way through, it's very topical. And I think that's okay that we would address it in, in a topic. Because this is a topic that needs to be addressed, to be honest with you. And so in Psalm 37, verse 5, um, David writes, he says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. And so I want to I want to talk about that idea of commitment today. But before um, we're going to look at, I'm going to just kind of give you some evidence. To be honest with you, best I do the best I can to convince you um, of uh, of how important this really is. And and I guess as I prayed over this, and as I realized this is where where I was being led, I felt a little. Uh, uneasy about it, as I do oftentimes to be able to come before God's people and say some of the things that I'm called to say, because they are, there's a, this is a bitter kind of truth. Um, I think commitment's an issue for the church of the 21st century for a couple of reasons, and let me share those, you know, just my heart on this matter. Uh, the first reason is, is that we just simply are not as committed to Christ as we should be. We aren't, um, we a lot of what we do depends upon the uh, that kind of momentary rush of of, of that of that time of salvation, which we hearken back to that. But what was supernatural and unbelievable for us doesn't get stale, but it does kind of drift backwards in memory, so that we don't remember it quite as well as we should. And so for that reason, the farther we get from it, sometimes that fire that ought to be a raging inferno is just kind of a spark, a flicker. And we don't do enough to, to read through the scriptures and stoke that fire. I, I believe we read the scriptures. I think most believers tend to read the scriptures for a couple of wrong reasons. One is affirmation. And the other reason is just for help in time of trouble. Just for help in time of trouble. So we will study those scriptures to give us the um, to give us the direction when we when we're in trouble and we really need it. And that what what God it's not that the scriptures don't lend themselves to that because they do. It's the fact that the scriptures actually are are that are that source of ongoing power in our relationship. And that because we are kind of disconnected from the scriptures, therefore we just don't we don't have that burning fire the way we should. But now the second reason is I think even more so in our culture is that I think the reason why we're not as committed to God's word, committed to the church, committed to the things of the church as we should be, is just simply because we're so overtly committed to everything else. We're overcommitted to jobs, and we're overcommitted to family, and we're overcommitted to friends, and we're overcommitted to everything in the world that we have literally chosen. And what we've decided is, is that God is okay with me being more committed to my job than I am to Him. That God is okay with me being more committed to my family than I am to Him. I'm not sure that I can neglect... I'm not sure that neglecting my job... For Christ is actually neglecting a job. I'm not, and I know that neglecting my family, or what feels like neglecting my family, in order to uh, bring honor and glory to God, is not really neglecting my family. I think that what I've established in my own heart sometimes is a very false understanding of what real commitment is and what real neglect is. 
And so I've substituted in ideas like indulgence instead of ideas like real commitment. And so for that reason, I think where, where we write, where it's written from today, where we seek God's scriptures today, is from, a, from a, a really shaky ground. And that is the idea that if you really think about it, if we really believe what we say, we, what we claim to believe about this word, churches in, in the 21st century wouldn't be thinking about canceling services, they'd be adding services. You wouldn't be able to beat people from these halls. We wouldn't, we would literally, honestly, as, as a group of people, the way we are so constructed right now, wouldn't be able to meet the needs of the church in terms of teaching and fellowship and worship. Instead of trying to scratch in our heads and thinking about if we could ever get away with doing something else, there should be this, this, this demand to do so much more. Simply put, because I just be honest with you, churches just don't, we don't really believe what we say we believe. About every bit of truth in here. So that reason, I want—I mean, I want to look and see what God's word says now. But as, as we begin this journey to commit our, our way to the Lord, and when I, I think that's the operative term, He doesn't just as a heart or yourself commit your way. So it's not just that, like I said, we all know that 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 epic divorce in people where I can say I'm doing one thing, but my life is illustrating all the opposite points, right? My heart, I can say my heart does this. I can say my mind does this. I can say I'm committed in my passions and my emotions to this. But what I'm doing every day really reveals who I am, doesn't it? Where I spend my time reveals who I am. So he says, if the way is right, the heart, the mind, all that's going to be right. The way's wrong, all those other things have to be wrong too. Commit your way. Commit my path to God. So, Charles Spurgeon describes the commitment of our Lord Jesus, obviously the, the, the standard for us. When he preached, you never hear Jesus say in Pilate's judgment hall one word that would let you imagine that he was sorry that he had undertaken so costly a sacrifice for us. When his hands are pierced, when he is parched with fever, his tongue dried up like a shard of pottery. When his whole body is dissolved in the dust of death, you never hear a groan or a shriek that looks like Jesus is going back on his commitment. He is the model, the standard for commitment against which we now have to measure ourselves. We are his children called out of darkness to walk in his light. And so now we can only think of ourselves as committed if we're committed the way Jesus is committed. And Jesus' commit, commitment was absolute commitment. Absolute commitment. Now, what, one of those things that makes this uneasy for me is that when I start to preach this, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of all those ways I'm not as committed as I need to be. I'm thinking of all those ways I fail. And there's no escaping that. The only person who can preach this sermon and have any real validity in person is Jesus himself. Paul fell short somewhere. I don't know where it was. But Paul fell short somewhere because he's a man. And Peter fell short. And John fell short. Even if we raised, God raised literally from the dead, the patriarchs, they would fall short in preaching this sermon. Only Jesus measures up to his words in this. Look, the writer of Hebrews describes the infinitely effective atoning sacrifice of Christ in Hebrews 9.12 by saying that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, the securing an eternal redemption. 
And once again, his commitment matters because now we're going to look at the impact of that commitment. It, it matters that Jesus didn't complain. It matters that Jesus didn't go back on his word. It matters that Jesus was willing to go all the way to the point of death. In order to atone for our sins. If he had not, we would not be saved. If he had not, there would be no reason for this gathering. We're all going to hell. We might as well go enjoy the time we have. Because Jesus completed that journey to the cross and beyond. We have a durable, eternal salvation. Because of that. The redemption of the world costs our Lord everything. And freed the most wretched of sinners from the bondage of their rightful punishment. He gave up everything. His commitment was to give everything. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later. But we understand that to be true. That when he paid, the payment he made was to literally give everything. Without this gory sacrifice, men and women crushed by their iniquity would have no hope of ever breathing the free air of eternal salvation. If Jesus had not done this, we would remain in our sins. So to, for tonight, for anyone who might, who might be troubled by this or might believe that they still remain with that bondage of sin and they, they see no way out, I would say this, Jesus has legitimately, literally, and for all times paid it all. As the song says, He has atoned completely for the sins of those who would believe upon His name. It is both sufficient and efficient to secure your release from the bondage of sin. It is done everything that needs to be done. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.24 that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. One of the things that occurred to me as I was working on this this afternoon. and If it's rough and it's shambles. I, I'm sorry, my... My brain and my heart's kind of shambles right now, I'll be honest with you. But as I, as I thought about this, I thought of this is the impact on my life. Because it's the opposite of me. Um, secretly in the dark places, I firmly believe that I always get what I deserve, especially when it's bad. I, I've said that to myself so many times. So many times, I got exactly what I deserved there. And so, so, there would be terror in my heart being led to that, this type of condemnation. There would be terror in my heart as a human being. I might plea for my life. But even in my own heart, I would know they were lies. That I was getting what I deserved. Because the cross is what I deserve. My, my deeds justified it long ago. I deserve death on the cross. What, what shook me this afternoon as I, as I pondered over this was the fact that Jesus not only did not deserve death on the cross, but He is literally the King of all creation. What was in that heart that allowed himself to be infinitely stained in that way? That he could go and accept the cross. The king of creation accepts the cross. He doesn't fight against it. Because I'll tell you this much. If Tony, even guilty, guilty as sin, knowing deep and dark and black how terrible he is. If Tony stood there and he had the power to dispense with the cross... 
through, through, through supernatural means, I would do it even though I deserve it. I would preserve my evil, wicked flesh because, I just, because I'm so weak and so frail and so fearful that I would just have to strike out in that way. But Jesus, who could do everything, who had every power, not only over the cross, but over the men and over the, 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 the mockers, over everyone there, Jesus accepts the cross with humility. He accepts what is not his, what belongs to me. By his wounds, I and you have been, made, have been made whole. The only solution to the issue of human sin was for our Lord to bear the penalty himself. For the lawgiver and the judge to become the substitute. And through the action of the cross, the new covenant was enacted that saves the unsavable. And redeems those so lost in mind and heart that only a miracle could remove the marks of their transgression. What has happened there is what absolutely had to happen. Is that Jesus Christ has died and now you and I could be miraculously saved. His commitment led to the miraculous, supernatural salvation of men and women who had no other way. There's nothing I could do, nothing I could turn my back on. Nothing I could say no to, no way I could change myself. You either, we couldn't do it. Jesus had to do this. If he fails in an iota of his commitment, we are lost. But his commitment was as infinite as his love. There was no place so painful and so deep and so bloody that he would not go to ransom those that are his. The cross, the image of Christ's commitment to His Father's will, completes our journey out of darkness along a road paved in biblical truth and martyrs' bones. Paul explains in Titus 2.14 that Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who is zealous for good works. So we look at His commitment and, and we'll follow up with His commitment and the, the fruits of that commitment. It is to redeem us and purify us for one reason, good works. He didn't just save us because we needed saving. Because I think that's still human-centered. I think sometimes we think He saved humanity because humanity was so desperate. Humanity was desperate. And humanity needed on some level saving but humanity did not deserve saving. Humanity is not worthy of the blood of Jesus. I'm not, you're not, we're not, my children aren't, my grandchildren aren't worthy of the blood of Jesus. The infinitely costly was shed for that which is infinitely polluted by sin. He shed blood so that he could redeem us. And purify us so that we could serve Him. His commitment ends in our commitment. His commitment ends in a demand for our commitment. Retaining nothing of value. The Lord Jesus came not for our worship, but for our ransom. Was He manifested in order to remit the cost of our sin and purchase forever a people for His name? As He said, Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. 
He came to ransom us from that, that from those things in which we could never ransom ourselves. These instances prove the essence of a required component of vital faith. Commitment. Commitment. All of this proves one thing. Is that for us to honor God, we have to be committed. And if we're not, if we're not committed, we are by definition not honoring God. Now it's, it's a fool of a servant who believes he can dictate to the master the terms of service. I can't call myself committed. And what really betrays me is, is that deep in my heart, I know I'm not. I'll say it to try to rationalize away my problems. I'll say it to try to defend myself against criticism. But deep down inside, commitment is lacking. If there's an issue that clouds the minds of men and women in the church, hampers any work that we try to accomplish, dishonors God the most, disappoints the helpless, and reduces our witness to the ridiculous banner of the unconcerned, it's a lack of commitment in God's people. I've said this for a long time. It sounds so petty, but it's so true. If we can't get going to church right, what in the world can we do? If we fail in just going to church, going to the services, what in the world can we ever do? The church is supposed to shake the gates of hell and the church can't open the door on a Sunday. It's shameful. If you really, really address it the right way, it's shameful, isn't it? It's embarrassing. Because the casinos are packed. And the bar rooms are packed. And the restaurants are packed. The only place you can find a seat is in the church house. That's a problem, folks. We've got to know it's a problem. Famously, the Apostle Paul defines the parameters of the commitment of our Lord Jesus when he writes in Philippians 2, 6-8. This is how Jesus says this is what commitment looks like. We know that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ, for our benefit and for the good of the entire human race, undertook the kenosis. The very first thing that he did to show his commitment was he... No longer took advantage of that position that was his by his very right. The kingship that he enjoys was no longer something he would use on his behalf. The self-robbery, the emptying out of the marks and benefit of his divinity and kingship. He took on the form of the lowliest, lowliest of humanity and then humbled himself completely by accepting the fate of dying on the cross for the sins of his rebellious and undeserving people. What did commitment look like? He knew exactly what he was purchasing with his blood and he did it anyway. I'm still shocked by that. That truth has been haunting me virtually as long as I've been a believer. That it's not just that Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins. But that he went to the cross and he knew what he was buying. He knew what it meant to be a sinner. He was not a sinner, but he knew our sin. Can you imagine? If somebody accuses us of doing something we didn't do, we will howl 
and fight and fuss. We will blaspheme in order to drive away people who might accuse us. And Jesus accepted being condemned for sins. He never did. Sins that we did. He is guilty of what, he was made guilty of what we were actually guilty of. This is what Christ did for us. And the question that must be asked is what will his church do in response? Again, what will we do? Have we the mental muscle? Are we the steel-spined men and women who are willing to put aside differences and grievance and commit ourselves to the powerful work of sharing the message that Christ Jesus and only He saves men and women through the gospel message? Is that a question that the church can answer? Is that a question the church is willing to answer? What will we do? Do we have those two things, mental muscle and steel spines? I guess that the thing that's so weird for me to come in here and say this is that those fair winds and following seas are long over. The time when it was easy to serve Christ are over. And now we're trying to get the church committed in a way that brings honor and glory to God in, the, in one of the hardest times to commit to it. We're going to have to shake the dead back alive. Physically if need be. In a time in which even the faithful could faint. It will take the power of God to do this. Look, author Francis Frenupain wrote, To those whose attitude is just Jesus and me, I say, it's wonderful you found Jesus. But you cannot truly have Jesus and simultaneously not do what he says. The outgrowth of love and faith in Christ is love and faith like Christ, which means we're committed, even as he is, to his people. The Lone Ranger approach to the faith. That I can have my beliefs and practice them as I see fit. And do it outside the corporate body of believers. That typically because somebody hurt my feelings. Is a lie. Is a lie. You can't practice a living faith in Christ without other living beings in Christ can do it just at home. There's one thing the pandemic has taught us more than anything else. That being together with the body of Christ is, is the most essential part of our lives. It's more important than anything else we're called to do. We weren't wasting our time in worship services. But we were honoring God in worship services and feeding ourselves. Although it is ludicrous to discuss, everyone understands that commitment is more than most people want to admit in terms of the gospel and the church. We know it's true. We know that most people don't want to talk about commitment because the reality is they know deep, deep down they're not committed. They want to talk about things that encourage. I'll be honest with you, I'm encouraging everybody. I'm encouraging everybody in the sound of my voice, be more committed. It begins with me. It begins with me. I started looking early this morning at the ways in which I know I'm failing. And I've got to do better. I've got to be more committed in those areas. But more than anything else, we've all got to be committed. We've all got to march forward strongly. Armed, ready. And unfortunately, we gather in an age when the vast majority of those who claim to know Christ are likely to neglect His gathering. Like I said, we're Southern Baptists. 15.8 million strong or something like that. And every Sunday, 10 million are missing. We don't have a clue where they are. 
What it really sounds like is we're really 5.8 million. And I don't know what to say about those 10 million. But I fear for them. It's a pretty sobering thing to fear for 10 million people, isn't it? They're supposed to be your brothers and sisters. There is a shame in this kind of failure, this slow burn of apathy that overcomes the heart of the church and forces it toward inward concentration and not outward devotion. See, one of those, one of those fears I have for the pandemic is, is that the pandemic creates a new idea that is really an old idea. That I can serve God just as well by myself. That I don't need the church. I don't need the body of believers. It's either too inconvenient or it's too dangerous or it's too something. I'm fearful of that. Very fearful of that. Christ Jesus on Calvary is the definition of fidelity. How do we demonstrate our commitment to Christ with the same kind of fervor and passion that drove Him to conquer sin and death on our behalf? And what does this commitment really look like? And I want to define those two things very quickly in three points. Very, very quickly. What does it really look like? How can I commit my way? What is a committed way? I'm not going to define the whole thing, but I'm going to do my best to define it right now in, in simple terms that we can take away. First, eagerly wait for Christ. You know, I'll be honest with you. Who knows how you put these things in order when you're writing a sermon? My temptation, that's such a heavenly thing, is I'd put that last. I'd want, you know, nuts and bolts, um, you know, close to the dirt things that we can do right away. Read your Bible. You know what I'm talking about? Pray more. Things that we know we need to do, that we need to be reminded of, though. Mm -mm. An attitude of eagerly waiting for Christ. Look, the good servant always waits with anticipation for the coming of the righteous master. Always. It can feel passe. But here's the reality. Jesus is coming soon. We don't know when. We know the Bible describes it as soon. We know we've been in the end time since the ascension of Christ to the right hand of His Father. That inaugurated the end times. So we've had 2,000 years of end times. And if it goes on 2,000 more or 20,000 more or 200,000 more, it doesn't matter. We, the church, always must regard it as what? Imminent. The fuel in our fire is that at any moment the eastern sky might split. Because when we regarded it not in, in not those, without those terms, we have tended to do what? Take it easy like a procrastinating kid. Mama said clean the room. I don't have to clean it right now. When does it get cleaned? Never. Never. They procrastinate until they fall asleep and then they wake up and it's not clean the next day, right? And that goes for us too, doesn't it? If I'm going to get to it, when I better get to it? Brother, I better get to it before I sit down, right? Because if I sit down, I ain't getting up again. Because you can go to bed or it can come for you and oftentimes when you're old, it'll come for you, right? I know I better be anxious about the things of my Lord. The writer of Hebrews wrote, Hebrews 9, 28, said Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Wait eagerly. The first thing on my mind in the morning is the return of Christ. And the last thing on my mind when I go to bed at night is the return of Christ. And every moment in between is lived in light of the imminent return of Jesus. It gives me the focus I need. It gives the church the focus it needs. 
We won't get caught up in the nonsense. I'll be honest with you. If Jesus is coming back, maybe right now, who cares what color the carpet is? Who cares what color the walls are? Jesus is returning. That's what matters. Have you heard about my king? Because he's coming soon. The days in which his people interpreted the scripture such that they saw within them plenty of time to build their own barns while the world around them burned are finally mercifully over. The church should not focus merely on eschatology but must realize that no matter when the return of Christ, the last days have been upon us since the first century and the church, church must live that way. Tomorrow could bring the most gripping of sorrow. We must await the coming of our Lord as a sign and a portent for those who in despair cry out to the living God for mercy. We can literally tell them when we share the gospel, look to the eastern sky because that's where your deliverance is coming from. In our eagerness to see the eastern sky divided, we're preaching that Christ is the only one who can save this world from the coming doom. So eagerly wait for Jesus. Every day, remind yourself, this could be the day. Did those around me know? Have I picked the low-hanging fruit, the ripe fruit? Have I looked for every opportunity? Second, walk in the light, in the image and path of Christ in this world, and do so with great vigor and boldness. We're going to walk like we belong to Jesus. The greatest measure of our commitment is walking like we are His. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 1.7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So the sin problem that troubles us so much is better because we walk in the light. But there's an aspect of this I think we miss. The fellowship. When I'm walking in the light, I've got fellowship with the believers. Hey, look, if my, if my life is not defined by fellowship with the believers, my life is, if, if that's the case, then my life is not one that's walking in light. Because when I walk in light, I fellowship with the believers. For all the Lone Rangers out there that just can't get along with anybody, for whom the church has been one disappointment or disaster after another, you know, it may be them. But it might be you. Walk in the light. Because he says that walking in the light brings me into fellowship. With one another. Christ has called the church to walk in the light of his word, illuminated by the teaching and power of the Holy Spirit, guided by the clarity of the gospel and fueled by a divine compulsion to see the truth conquer the twisted and broken lives of all men and women around us. By walking as we should, lives that are characterized by a profound dedication to biblical truth and firm adherence to the redeemed morality of the Lord are, um, are an example of the scriptures for all to see will be a beacon to those who are desperately sin-sick and in need of the supernatural healing of Christ. Then finally, get rid of that old leaven. I'm going to eagerly wait. I'm going to walk in the light. And I'm going to acknowledge the fact that my life is full of a ton of old leaven. There's a lot of rotten stuff still in my life. I deal with there's nothing. And what I told you guys, what gets me is this: is that you can talk to young believers, you can talk to young believers, and in a moment of honesty, they will tell you that everything in their life is rotten. But I tell you what: the older we get, the more we will look at stuff and act like it's all from Jesus. And I don't think it's okay for us to do what we want. I can't tell you what. I've never had a kid tell me it's okay to go some places that you know are dedicated to everything that Christ is not. I have had a bunch of old folks tell me that. It's shameful. 
It's old leaven. It's poison is what it is. And this idea that just because I am, I'm, more, I'm 50 or 60 or 70 or whatever we are, that somehow I can make, I'm, I'm strong enough to make old leaven okay, that's a lie, folks. It's a poison is what it is. And if it's in my refrigerator or it's on my TV or it's on my phone or wherever it is, it's got to go. What will stand between me and commitment? Old leaven. Anything from the old me that poisons. If it's old friends, it's old places, it's old things, old books, who cares? Old leaven. We are new in Christ Jesus. Our sins are conquered. Hearts and spirits are newly minted and exercising miraculous new spiritual abilities that were unheard of in the dark days of our lost nature. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. How can... It, look, what could never happen before. Yeah, I don't care if it was drinking or if it was drugs or if it was pornography or whatever it was. It was the old leaven that polluted your life. When you were lost, you had no power over it. But Paul is incredibly clear. Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Your power over the old leaven is not yours at all, but it is Christ's. And he will expunge from your life that old leaven. Don't stand in the way. Don't stand in the way. For the believing world, we cannot leave behind the people that we were. We cannot leave behind the people that we were with too much urgency. We have to get away from the old us. The old us was going to hell. The way the old you thought, the way the old you believed, the way the old you conducted him or herself, guess what? That was nothing but condemned. There was nothing about it that our Lord thought was cute and everything about it Christ had to suffer for. It is all old leaven. My old bigotries and my old ideas and every priority I ever had in my life is nothing but old leaven. It destroys. It's poison. It's absolute poison. Whether it's gripped by fear and uncertainty, devoted to attracting the attention of those that should give that that would give um, our lives some kind of false satisfaction, or wasting our energy on the trappings of the meaningless material world, too many believers fail to cut from their lives the refuse of the previous person. Christ died to save us from all of that. Not so that we can continue the sin corrupting commitment. Excuse me, the corrupting commitment to the sin-soaked priorities of a dying world. He did not turn us loose to turn back. He turned us loose to pursue Him through holiness. To march forward. Cut loose the leaven, folks. Burn it from your heart with as much word as you can take. Turn your back on sin and death. And when you do this, in commitment to Christ, you will breathe free air. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to preach your word, Father God. And I pray, God, that I did it rightly, God. I pray, God, that I came, Lord, and I preached honestly, God, with real commitment to you, Father God. And I pray, God, that I'm not, not dishonest, Father God, about my lack, Father. I know, God, that in the midst of all this, Lord, that it's so easy to stray, Father God. But that the stakes are too high, God. We can't have a stray in church. We can't have, Father God, a church that's, that lacks commitment. We've got to have, Father God, a, a church whose commitment is razor sharp, Father. That's ready, God, for every challenge. That doesn't fear, Father. Because I'm telling you, well, God, when, I'm not, when I have no commitment, I know I'm full of fear. Father God, please now, God, overcome the hearts of your church. Get them back, first and foremost, God, in the pews where they belong. Generations missing, Father God. Back in the pews where they belong. Bringing honor and glory to God with at least that time, Father. 
God, whatever's got to happen, whatever miracle that must take place, God, work that miracle. Bring your people back into the house where they belong, Father God. Fill up churches, Father God, that preach the gospel. Please, God, do whatever work you need to do, do that. And Father God, show us, God, then through the word, what the impact of real commitment to the gospel will be in, in this world, Father. Show us that, Lord, we love you. We need you, God. The church needs you, Father God. Because even though, God, it may look so sedate in some ways, God, what we need, Lord, is a fire in the church. What we need, Father God, is that wildfire that doesn't have to be advertised, Father God. So please bless us now, Father God. Bless your people and draw us back, Father God, to a kind of faithfulness, Lord, that only you can brand on us. Lord, we love you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.